certain age because he lives because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. I'll begin reading in verse 8. In the Red Pew Bibles, this can be found on page 960. That's 960. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they shall pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Not infrequently as a preacher, I have been asked over the years if miracles are still being performed today. Is it possible that I could see a miracle? Is it possible that somebody has a miraculous gift and they're able to raise the dead or heal the sick? Is it possible that people today could speak in tongues? 
Over the last four or so weeks, we've been talking together on Sunday nights about love and its characteristics. This lesson is really not a part of that series, but it is a part of the same chapter from which we took a number of those other lessons. As you're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, especially those verses, I believe the Bible answers the question, are there still miracles taking place today? Is God still working in the same way today that we see him working in the first century church? I believe the answer to the question is found in these verses. Just to give you a little bit of background, as you look at 1 Corinthians 13, again, it's about love. It's a, it's a chapter and a passage, especially verses 4 through 8, that are read very frequently at weddings, at happy occasions, because it has so much to say about what God intends for us to do, how he intends for us to live. But when you get to verse 8, you see the word love mentioned. Love never fails or never ends, depending on your translation. You see that in verse 8? And then... You don't see the word love again until verse 13. Notice that. From verse 8 to verse 13, love is only mentioned in those two places. But the subject under discussion as you look at the rest of that section is miraculous gifts, spiritual gifts. And when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you can't just isolate chapter 13 from the rest of it and say, well, this doesn't have any logical way that it fits into the book. It does fit logically. A little bit of background. When Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians 2,000 years ago, there was a congregation meeting in the city of Corinth made up of people just like us. People who had believed in Jesus Christ and had submitted to the gospel and who were striving to live for him. But there were some problems in that congregation, among which you'll find these problems being mentioned in the book. They had a problem with pride. They were thinking too much of themselves. Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's a lot like what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. You guys know a lot of things and you have a lot of information stored up in your heads, but that in and of itself doesn't necessarily help people. It's good to know what God's will is. It's good to know what God wants, but don't be proud of that. And don't look down on others who don't know as much as you maybe. The church in Corinth had a problem with childishness. There's a difference between childish and being childlike. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, that we ought to be like little children. But sometimes we behave very immaturely. And that's wrong. Immaturity. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about how they are immature, how they are carnal in their minds, how they are behaving themselves like little children. This congregation also had a problem with division in that same passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 where carnality, where pride and those kinds of things exist, there is strife, there is division. And so the church was splintering into little factions, into little groups where there should have been unity and there should have been a spirit of oneness and togetherness. The church was divided. And you could see it before services. And you could see it during services. And you could see it after services. When the church was together, 
you could see that people were not all on the same page. They didn't all have a bond, a common bond that they were recognizing in Christ. They were dividing over all kinds of things. You also learn as you read the book of 1 Corinthians that the church was glorying in spiritual gifts. This gives us a backdrop for what's about to be said in 1 Corinthians 13. In the first century, there was a time when apostles could come and they could lay their hands on individual Christians and they could give those Christians, they could impart to those Christians a spiritual gift. And what's meant by spiritual gifts is that some Christians had the ability to perform miracles. This was done because the Bible was not yet fully written. It took some time for all the books of the New Testament to be completed. It took a lot of history and a lot of water under the bridge and a lot of different circumstances before God chose to inspire holy men to write down the words that he wanted to give to the world. And so in the interim, in that transition time, after the death of Christ, but before the New Testament was fully revealed, people who were members of the church in many places had spiritual gifts. And you could think about the practicality of this because maybe somebody has the gift, we'll talk about this in just a moment, of knowledge. God is giving that person miraculous knowledge. They didn't have to go to school and study it. They didn't have to learn it. God told them in the moment what they needed to say to the church. That would be a blessing, wouldn't it? Some others had the ability to speak in tongues. They could speak languages that they had never studied. They didn't have to go to a foreign country and become immersed in the culture in order to learn and become fluent in a foreign language. They could speak in other languages and imagine what that would have done for the progress of the gospel in the ancient world. It was a miracle. And people were amazed when they saw people speaking in tongues. And then there were some who had the gift of interpretation. And what the church in Corinth was doing, if you read carefully, they were puffed up against each other. And they really seemed to emphasize speaking in tongues. I mean, they seemed to think as a congregation that speaking in tongues was like the high point, the apex. If you can, if you can heal the, the sick, if you can raise the dead, well, that's impressive. That miracle is good, but speaking in tongues, that's really important. And so, if you're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, back up to chapter 12 and verse 31. And Paul is saying to his brethren in this particular chapter, you should earnestly desire the best gifts. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. He's telling his brethren, you may have a lot of different gifts and not everybody had all the gifts. In fact, it doesn't seem that everybody, anybody, any one person had all the different gifts. It seems that some people had the ability to speak in tongues. Some people had miraculous wisdom and knowledge. Other people had the ability to interpret foreign languages. And Paul says, you ought to work together rather than trying to decide who has the best gifts and who's more spiritual based on which gifts they have. Love is what ought to characterize you more than anything else. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13. And now what I want us to do is begin in verse 8, and I want to make four observations tonight. Are there miracles still taking place today? What Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13 is this. He provides a contrast. And the contrast is this. The permanence of love, 
love never fails, he contrasts that with the impermanence, the brief nature, the short nature of these spiritual gifts that our brethren possessed 2,000 years ago. It's a contrast. Love is permanent, but these gifts that you have delight in, that you're glorying in, that you're trying to figure out who's the most spiritual, these gifts are temporary. Love's what's permanent. That's what you ought to pay attention to. Watch this. Observation number one. Paul says, love never fails. The unfailing nature of love. He wants to drive it into our brains. He wants to get us focused on love because love is the greatest command. Remember? Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus, what's the great command in Scripture? I'll tell you what the great command in Scripture is, Jesus says. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second one just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, yes, love never fails. Love is not defeated. Love does not end, depending on your translation. There's a Greek word there in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, that means not defeated, not overcome, never brought to the ground. You think about a wrestler, and what the wrestler's trying to do is take his opponent down, trying to overcome his opponent, trying to bring him to the ground. Love is not like that. Love is undefeatable. It's never brought to the ground. That's the way Christians ought to think about love. It persists. It endures. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now abide, faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love, he says. Brothers and sisters and friends, the message for the church then and now is that Christians ought to be people who are devoted to love. Christians ought to emphasize love in all that they do. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, because love never comes to an end, it never becomes invalid. Love is something that endures not just through this life, but into the next. What's heaven gonna be like? What's it gonna be like when we're with our God and all the saints and the redeemed of all the ages and all the angels? You can sing about the streets of gold and about the mansions over the hilltop, but the Bible describes heaven as a place of love and relationship. We need as Christians to remember that truth because sometimes even today we get caught up in knowledge and we get caught up in who's talented and we get caught up in abilities and we focus on the wrong things. Love abides it never fails. That is an important principle. It's eternal in its nature. You think about 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith and hope. Those will, in a sense, come to an end one day. Because if I see my hope, if I've realized my hope, it's not hope anymore. If I see the object of my faith, I'm not walking by faith anymore. I'm walking by sight. When I see the Lord face to face, faith and hope will dissipate, but love will endure. We need as Christians to remember that principle. Now, notice this secondly. As you read on in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Paul says this. He says, but where there are prophecies, he's talking about a miraculous gift, the gift of prophecy, and he says they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. 
Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So what's he doing? He's saying love abides, but tongues and prophecies and knowledge, these miraculous gifts that you have, they are going to, what does he say in verse eight? He says they're gonna fail, they're gonna cease, they're gonna vanish away. They are temporary, love is not. You see his point? These gifts that, you've, that, you, that you love so much, they're of a temporary nature. He goes on in verse nine and says this, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. So what we have right now, he's saying, is partial revelation. The New Testament has not been completely written down. The letters to the different congregations in the New Testament have not yet been completely circulated all over the world. And so what we know, we know in part. When we prophesy, we're just prophesying a part. But then he says this in verse 10, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now I want you to hang on to verse 10 for just a minute. Follow the logic. Love abides, love endures. It's the greatest thing ever. Love is what we ought to be all about. But tongues and prophecies and knowledge, they're temporary, they're gonna vanish away. And then he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. You see his logic? When that which is perfect has come, then these tongues and prophecies and knowledge, that's when they're over. That's when they're through. So the question is this. What does he mean in verse 10 when he says, that which is perfect has come? What's he referring to? You might be surprised that there are quite a few answers being given by the religious world. What does it mean, that which is perfect? As you think about it, Miraculous gifts were always intended by God to be temporary in nature. In the Old Testament and the New Testament both, miraculous gifts were foretold and they were described. In Hebrews chapter two, verses three and four, the Hebrews writer talks about these miraculous gifts and he says to his brethren, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who have heard and then he says, and God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God has given miraculous gifts to the church in the first century, he's saying. And he's attesting to his will with, that, with those gifts. He's attesting to what he's saying being true. Not only were they foretold and described, but they were real and beneficial. In Romans chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says to the church at Rome, I am coming to you and I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. One of the reasons Paul wanted to visit his brethren was because spiritual gifts were part of their reality, were part of their existence. Spiritual gifts were part of what they knew. And Paul says, I want to give you some more gifts. I have the ability to do that. The apostles were the only ones that did. Then you read in the New Testament that there were nine such gifts, at least in Corinth. Read with me, if you would, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. The manifestation of the Spirit, he says, is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. There's one gift. To another is given, verse 8, 
the word of knowledge through the same spirit. I don't know what the difference is between miraculous wisdom and miraculous knowledge, but they did. They recognized what these were. In verse 9, he says to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So there are at least nine that you read about just in this particular congregation at Corinth. Nine that we know of, but again, contrasted with love. And so back to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. When that which is perfect is come, these miraculous gifts in their temporary nature, they're going to come to an end. What does the religious world say about that which is perfect? It does not mean the following three things. Number one, some say that that which is perfect refers to Jesus. They believe that that which is perfect means that when Jesus comes at the end of time, when he returns, that that means that the miraculous gifts are then at that time going to cease. Our Pentecostal friends, they justify their belief that miraculous tongue speaking and those kinds of things are still happening today with this particular view most of the time. They would say that that which is perfect in verse 10 refers to Jesus. Miraculous gifts, they say, yes, they're temporary, but they're going to last until he comes, until the Lord returns. The problem with that view, actually there are several problems, but one to just bring to your attention from this particular text. In the Greek language, pronouns can be masculine, they can be feminine, or they can be neuter. Those of you who speak other languages, you're familiar with this. Even in English, we have he, she, and it, right? Paul does not say when he who is perfect has come. Paul says when that which is perfect is come. He's not speaking about the Lord returning. He's speaking about something that in the Greek language is neuter and it. He's not speaking about the Lord and not speaking about the Lord's return. A second thought. Some people say that which is perfect has to do with, okay, I see your point, John. It can't be Jesus because, because it's neuter terms. But how about this? Maybe it refers to our perfect state in heaven, that which is perfect. When we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout the victory, and of course, miraculous gifts will come to an end because that which is perfect will have come at that point. Something to think about in your study and in your reading of 1 Corinthians. Eternity, our bliss that we're going to enjoy in heaven, that's really not ever brought up in any detail throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and it's certainly not found in 1 Corinthians 13. It would be really interesting that Paul would make such an oblique reference in this particular context to heaven in our heavenly state without ever spelling it out anywhere nearby in this particular passage or any other in 1 Corinthians. Something to think about. Other things you can bring up. A third, what it's not, some people say, well, that which is perfect refers to Christian maturity or love. In other words, their, their view is something like this. 
If you Corinthians would just grow up, if you would just mature, if you would just learn to be like Christ, then that which is perfect would come. But the problem with that is that miraculous gifts and their duration did not depend on the maturity of believers. You see the point? Just because people grow up spiritually and just because they stop behaving immaturely and just because they stop with the division in the congregation, that doesn't mean that, okay, now there's no more need for miraculous gifts. It was the gifts that were causing some of the division, at least the way they were viewing them. When that which is perfect doesn't have to do with Christian maturity or love. It just, none of these fit what Paul is saying. But I'll tell you what does. When you read the passage carefully, there's a then and now. There is a this will endure until. And I believe Paul tells you exactly what that which is perfect refers to. What it does mean is this. The full and the complete revelation of God's Word. Put yourself in their shoes or their sandals. 2,000 years ago, the brethren in Corinth could not open their New Testaments to the book of Revelation. You know why? Revelation had not been written yet. They couldn't read what Jesus had to say to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They couldn't read about the ultimate victory of God's people over evil. They couldn't read about the great supper feast, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. They couldn't read about Revelation 21 and the blissful state of God's people. They couldn't read those words because they had not yet been written down. They couldn't turn to 1 John and read about how whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist, is against God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. They couldn't read about that. But when that which is perfect came, the full and complete revelation of God's word, then there was no more need for miraculous gifts, tongues and prophecies and knowledge. And so as you read this particular passage, look at verse 8, look at verse 9. We know in part, we prophesy in part. The things that we're doing right now are limited by the fact that not everything's been given, not everything's been revealed yet. They're limited. So we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, when the New Testament has been completely revealed, the world has everything God wants to say. 100% of God's revelation to man. What does that which is perfect refer to? It refers to the completion of the New Testament. And brothers and sisters and friends, we need to talk to our religious neighbors about this very kindly, very patiently, but show them the Bible predicts that miraculous gifts were going to cease when that which is perfect came. Well, what does he mean in verse 10 about that which is perfect? He's talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the full revelation of the 27 books that we know of as our New Testament. When that was finished, when that was completed, then that which was in part, the tongues, the prophecies, and knowledge was done away. All right, as you continue, look at the passage. Paul goes on to establish with some illustrations. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. It's not just for parents to give to their teenagers. It's a passage 
that Paul wants us to think about in the context of the first century church. The first century church was in an infant state. It had just begun and the knowledge was limited and sparse. And as God revealed more and more of his will, there was more maturity, there was more growth. And finally, that which is perfect came. The New Testament was revealed, which is able to make us wise unto salvation, which is able to thoroughly equip us for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Not only is there an illustration, but there's another explanation. He says in verse, verse uh, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In the first century, they didn't have nice, really pristine mirrors that you can go and see yourself perfectly reflected for good or ill. What they had was kind of like, you know, silver. Uh, something that, that just gave you a very dim reflection. You could see a little bit, maybe your outline, maybe make out your form a little bit, but it would be really hard for a reflection, a mirror, to give you an accurate picture of yourself because of the materials that were available in those days. And what Paul is saying is, for right now, I see it a mirror dimly. In other words, for right now, God's word has not yet been fully revealed. But then it will be as if I see face to face. And then there's illumination. For now, he says in verse 13, or verse 12, I know in part, but then... Notice the now and then, all the way since verse 8, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying is the situation in the church in Corinth in the first century was not a situation that was going to exist indefinitely. There was going to be a revelation that was completed of the New Testament. The documents that God wanted written were written. They were copied. They were reproduced. We have the New Testament revealed to us. And when the New Testament came into its completion, there was no more need for those temporary miraculous gifts. You know, when workers build a building, they put up scaffolding. Or when they remodel your house, they put up scaffolding. And I don't know about you, but when the building is completed, I want the scaffolding torn down. How about you? I want them to take down all that extra, the extraneous things that aren't necessary to the building. It's been said that miraculous gifts were like the scaffolding for the building of the New Testament. They were there to serve a purpose, to serve a need, but they were not the focus. The focus has always been the written word, what God has given us from his son through his spirit to the world. We need to love the Bible. We need to learn the Bible. We need to remember what the Bible says because his word can be hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. Psalm 119 verse 11. It's that which is perfect, complete, finished. Thank you very much for your attention this evening. As you think about these passages, love really is what endures. And my question for you tonight is this, do you have a love for God? Is doing his will, is obeying his written word something that you're really all about? Is doing what the Bible says really what you're committed to? Obey God's word tonight if you haven't done so. 
Repent of your sin. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you need to make, a, uh, uh, make that happen this evening or if we can help you by praying for you, why don't you make your way down the aisles together we stand and as we sing.